0: Good morning. morning. I uh, know that was a fair amount already. I almost feel like everybody should stand up for a minute. You don't have to, I guess, but we've been sitting for a bit already. I know that was a lot. We do have some things we want to consider as well regarding spiritual gifts. So this is uh, message number two of three on uh, spiritual gifts. Uh, There should be a PowerPoint there. We have a, a sheet, a printout. Uh, Listing the spiritual gifts we passed them out last week if you need one just slide your hand up Uh, The boys back there have them and they can pass out a sheet That's just a help regarding uh, the specifics of the spiritual gifts We're only going to maybe refer to that briefly this morning That's more for next week, but it is a help just to kind of have an idea Of what we're of what we're talking about what spiritual gifts are So uh, last week uh, let's see, let's just run through this real quickly here, very quickly, as quickly as we can. We have three messages on spiritual gifts. Last week, we considered a working definition of spiritual gifts. Uh, if you didn't get that, uh, please uh, listen to it online, because uh, that is kind of the basis of where we're headed. You do need to understand what a spiritual gift is, otherwise you very well may be at least somewhat lost. Today, we're going to consider some key factors concerning the use of spiritual gifts. Consider some key factors concerning the use of spiritual gifts. That's today. And then next week, in the will of the Lord, we will consider the spiritual gifts themselves, okay? So uh, that's just a very brief overview. Now, last week, we did consider this definition of spiritual gifts, and uh, I'm going to read it for you. Spiritual gifts are supernatural abilities or special enablements sent from God by grace to maximize a Christian spiritual service. Their end goals are the edification of the body and the glorification of God. Last week, we ran through this piece by piece just to kind of break down and get an understanding of what spiritual gifts actually are. That is a working definition, which means it's not necessarily the final definition, but I do trust that it helps as we consider spiritual gifts. Now, uh, message number two, here we are today, let's consider some key factors concerning the use of spiritual gifts. We're going to consider under three headings this morning, factors concerning the use of spiritual gifts, okay? Uh, first of all, we're going to consider a metaphor. Uh, second of all, and we're working up the screen this morning, by the way, for a purpose, I so hopefully we'll get that at the end. We're going to consider a metaphor. Uh, second of all, we're going to consider a mindset, and then lastly, we're going to consider a motive. And I'll just say right now, the reason why we're working up the screen is because we're going to get to number one on the list. Number one. Number one is motive. It's love. It's charity. So uh, that, that's where we're headed. Okay? So metaphor. Uh, the metaphor that we're given in the New Testament is the metaphor of the body. This is the most vivid metaphor that we're given. It's a picture of what the New Testament church is, and it's integral to spiritual gifts. The body is an absolutely beautiful and very helpful metaphor of the church of Christ. It is very possible, think about this, that one of the reasons why God designed the human body is to, or at least why he designed it the way he did was to help us to understand that greater spiritual body that is the body of Christ, the church. So it's very possible that the reason why God designed this body, your body, the way that he did is at least partly to help you understand the greater spiritual body that is the body of Christ, the New Testament church. You and I, each of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior, are part of the church, that is to say metaphorically, the body of Christ, okay? Uh, now, I do want you to note, let's, let's look at just a few passages. We had four key passages last week, Romans 12. 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, all written by the Apostle Paul. And in each of these passages concerning spiritual gifts, we are talking about spiritual gifts, but you're going to look at the body. In each of these passages concerning spiritual gifts, the Apostle Paul uses this same metaphor three times. So do you think it's important? It is important, very important. So let's look at this just briefly. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I believe we read at least one of these verses last week. But I want you to see this because once I start going, I can just ramble and ramble and ramble. And I never really show you in the text because it's so evident to me, having been looking at it over and over for the last many weeks. But I want you to see it as well. So Romans chapter 12 says this. Just prior to the spiritual gifts being laid out in Romans chapter 12, verse four, the apostle Paul says this for we, for as we have many members in one body, Romans 12, verse four, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So there it is. And, of course, verse 6, that's where we begin spiritual gifts. There's the body, Romans chapter 12. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, 1 Corinthians immediately following Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and let's read verse 12. For as the body is one, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and has many members, but all the members of that one body Being many are one body, so also is Christ. So Romans 12, the body in the context of spiritual gifts. First Corinthians 12, the metaphor, the body in the context of spiritual gifts. The whole of chapter 12 is all about spiritual gifts. And then lastly, look at Ephesians chapter four. These again are three of, you could say, four key passages on spiritual gifts. And in each of them. In each of them, all of them, the the metaphor of the body is used. Keep in mind that Peter was uh, first. Peter was written by Peter, of course, different author, but nonetheless, the body, the metaphor. Ephesians four and verse sixteen. From whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. According to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So all I want you to see right now is that the body is a very important metaphor in the context of spiritual gifts. It's in all three of the passages. So what can we learn from the body? Well, we're going to look at the scriptures and see what the scriptures want us to learn from the body. What are some things we can learn from the body? Well, one of those things is unity, 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 unity is the state of being united or joined together as a whole. The idea is oneness, that there is oneness. There is also the idea in unity of unanimity, which is agreement This is in the sense of being of one mind, one mind. This applies to the body as well. Many body parts being controlled by one mind, by the head. When we look at the New Testament church, I trust you know this, but if not, I'm going to share it. The head of the New Testament church is Christ. So what we seek to have as a corporate body is the mind of Christ. Because we want to respond to those signals, the ones that are coming down from him, unity, unity in the body of Christ. We already read in Romans 12, for as we have many members in how many? One body. We read in 1 Corinthians 12, for as the body is one and has many members, all of those members of that one body being many are also one body in Christ. Unity, oneness. We are one in Christ. Our human bodies are made up of various parts, various members, yet it remains one body. This is not mysterious, is it? I mean, it's dynamic. It's incredible. The unity and harmony of the human body. But it's not something that even a child couldn't understand. In spite of the fact that there are many parts in the human, the healthy human body, it functions in majestic harmony. In unity, that's true, isn't it? The healthy human body functions in a, in an almost majestic unity and harmony. Even as I stand here, and the control center gives signals to my body, I mean it. My hands aren't working against my legs. My my, my feet aren't working against my my. Everything works together. It's it's a majestic almost harmony, unity, within. The body. So also is Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 says. So also is Christ. The body of Christ. This is the divine ideal, you could say. Sadly, this is not always the practical reality. But the divine ideal is that the body of Christ functions as we use our spiritual gifting. As we minister to one another, as we heard from 1 Peter 4 last week. It would do so in unity and harmony, just like the human body. This is the divine ideal. Sadly, it's not always the practical reality. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm asking even now for a little bit of grace from you. I know that I tend to be long-winded. I'm going to do my best, but do keep in mind we started quite a bit after time unity in the body of Christ. Listen to this and I'm going to just some of this. I'm just not going to get to, but we're going to run through as quick as quickly as we can. Ephesians chapter four says this. I, therefore, chapter four, verse one, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Listen to verse three, endeavoring Ephesians four, three to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You and I have been commissioned divinely by the spirit of God through the apostle Paul to do everything we possibly can to keep the unity. We don't create the unity. We are commissioned to keep the unity. Somebody may be sitting here today and say, well, that human body functions in majestic unity and harmony. But me with these people here, Lord, do you see what we're working with here? I mean, I'm quirky. They're quirky. I'm kind of weird. They're kind of weird. And you expect us to function in unity and harmony? The good news is that you don't create the unity and harmony. It's as if the Apostle Paul will respond to that type of sentiment Listen to what verse 4 says. There is one body and one spirit, oneness, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. You, you can't, you can't function in harmony with those people. Well, let me explain to you what you have in common. Let me explain to you the reality of the oneness. Now, practically, you all down there may not be living this out as you ought to be. But the reality of the oneness is that there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Seven times oneness. Seven aspects of oneness that you and I have that the body of Christ shares. This is perfect oneness. Seven times. One, 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 one. one in Christ. One body. Hey, we serve the same master, don't we? We function within the same body. The Holy Spirit that has been given to me is the same Holy Spirit that's been given to you. The baptism of the Spirit that took place, which we've all entered into, we share that as well. There is one baptism. There is one God and one Father. Wait, I worship God the Father? So do you. We're one in this. We're one in this. So we don't create the unity. God has created the unity. This is the oneness, perfect oneness. Seven times oneness. But we've been commissioned to keep the unity. To keep the unity. What could possibly divide us? If this is our oneness, what could possibly divide us? You want to know something? Most times division within the body of Christ is over simple petty things it, it, it's it's i'm not minimizing, but it's hurt feelings it's different tastes, different preferences but but come back to the oneness I, I share the same spirit that you do the same holy Spirit. I serve the same master he's my lord, he's your Lord. I bow the knee to the same God and Father. That you bow the knee to. The faith that I have placed everything into. Listen. We have put our all into the faith. Once for all delivered. You have as well. You have staked. I have staked my eternal destiny. On the very same faith that you have. What could divide us? The color of the chairs sometimes. The color of the paint. When it comes to spiritual gifts, you know what often divides? We learn about it a little bit in 1 Corinthians 12. Pride. I'm working. Look at what I'm doing, Lord, and the rest of these people here, they're not doing it. I don't see them doing what I'm doing. Uh, This is theoretical, I'm saying. This is not me speaking, but I'm saying this happens. When we function within our spiritual gifting, and especially in our gifting where there's fruit from God, it is so difficult to not start drawing divisions and saying, look at what I'm doing. Lord, where's the rest of the people? I feel like Elijah. I'm the only one left. And the Lord would say, no, 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 you're not. There's lots of people, lots of my people laboring unity within the body. Unity is all throughout the scriptures. Listen, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, unity, unity, unity all throughout. The Lord Jesus himself prayed, Father, I want them to be one just like you and I are one. Unity, is it important? It is crucially important. When there is no unity, I'm telling you, things just start to crumble, crumble. How can a body, how can a team, a family function when there's division? What we learn from Corinth is that in their division, there was strife. That's what happens when there's no unity, there's strife. There's no strength. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, look at you, you're weak. I'm feeding you like babies. You have envy. You have jealousy. You have division. You have strife. You have no strength. And and the picture in 1 Corinthians 11, because by the way, Corinth was absolutely divided. Chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 11. Divided, divided, divided. The picture in chapter 11, what is 1 Corinthians 11? It is the beginning is head coverings. Toward the end, we get into the Lord's Supper. And what we have, Paul's saying, look, you guys are coming together in one place to partake of the the emblems, what picture the one body of Christ, but you're divided. How can that be? We not only lose peace, we have strife. We lose strength. We can't function. What good could a church be if there's divisions and divisions? I'm not saying this is true here, but we need to be warned. And we lose the similitude. The picture that's there of the one body in Christ, what we all attest to when we come Sunday morning and we take of that one bread, we're attesting to the new covenant that we share in, the one body of Christ, God forbid... That we do this in picture, but in reality, there's division? Unity. Unity. Flowing beautifully out of unity, as we consider the metaphor of the body, is diversity. We have so much in common because of the commonalities and oneness of the body to which we belong, the one faith that we have believed, the one Lord that we serve, the one God that we worship, And yet there is beautiful diversity, not division, but diversity, diversity. That is to say, showing a great deal of variety. We are very different. Uh, Listen, unity is not uniformity. Uniformity says we all follow the same way. We have the same structure, the same character. We're all identical in essentially every way. That's not unity. That's uniformity. Diversity expresses up to us that we can be different, very different, and yet not divided. Not divided. Different in so many ways, different backgrounds, different, uh, different temperaments, different upbringings, different personalities, different heritages, different spiritual gifting. Diversity in the body of Christ. Diversity, listen, Here I go again, running through diversity without showing it to you. Romans chapter 12, verse 4. I got to run so you can flip there. All members do not have the same function, Romans 12, 4 says. That's diversity. All members, one body, but they do not have the same function. And our physical bodies display this in a very beautiful and majestic way. I've got lots of different parts in my one body that function in tremendous unity and yet diversity. My eyes don't do what my feet do. My heart doesn't do what my lungs do and so forth and so on. You get the picture. So we are very, very different. Oh, brothers and sisters, we serve a God who is not boring, not bland. Look at creation around us. The flowers, the snowflakes, the animals, humanity, 7 billion people, not two of them exactly alike. This is the God that we serve, and it's manifested in spiritual gifts. I'm just going to throw something out to you. This is for your consideration. I've given you a sheet with about 20 spiritual gifts on it. Some of them, I believe, were for the early church, but let's disregard that. Say there's 20 gifts for the New Testament church. I am not saying that each one of us fit into even just one of 20 categories when God dispenses spiritual gifts to the people of God, is, are there any two teachers that are alike? Not, not a two. Are there any two givers that are exactly alike? Not a two. Are there any two shepherds that are exactly alike? Not a two. They may share certain things, the same objective and so forth, the same goals. But, but the manifestation of the spiritual gifts that God has given, there's tremendous diversity diversity we'll consider a little bit more of that next week diversity is not division roman uh, 1 corinthians 12:4 says there are diversities of gifts in fact read one verse on diversity 1 corinthians 12 look at what 1 corinthians 12 verse 19 says if they We're all one member, not one body, because we are. But if they were all one member, where would the body be? Diversity is not just a pleasant thing. It's not just, oh, cool, we're kind of different. It's absolutely necessary. Where is the body without diversity? We are so glad as an assembly that we're not all exactly alike. We, we don't want, no offense, but we don't want just a hundred Dave Bosworths running around. No. We don't want a hundred Mike Rents running around or two hundred. We, we, we rejoice in the diversity that there would be nobody without diversity because we need different parts to function. There would be nobody. That's exactly what the text is saying. Diversity amplifies unity. Imagine that a a reporter comes to, say, a football player. Says, hey, big game tomorrow, right? Oh, yeah, he says, big game. Hey, the reporter says, how are things looking? Well, things are looking really good, really good for us, actually. The reporter says, hey, how's the team unity? How's the team unity? That's important in sports. And the the quarterback answers this way, well, you want to know something? It's tremendous. Actually, all 22 of us have decided to play the same position on Sunday, You see, diversity amplifies unity. It doesn't detract from it. The differences that we have naturally and spiritually amplifies the unity because we can see an entire body of different people from different backgrounds with different personalities and different preferences, by the way, on certain things and different spiritual gifts, but functioning in unity. It amplifies the unity. Number three. Number three, uh, flowing out of unity. The metaphor is the body. What do we see in the body? Unity, diversity. And we also see for the sixth click. Help me out there, brother, please. It's not going. It's quantity. Quantity. Romans 12, 4 says, many. First Corinthians 12, 12 says, Many. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 says many. 1 Corinthians 12, 20 says many. Flowing out of unity, diversity, quantity. How many? Well, how many body parts do you have? Well, let me count them. Oh boy, but let me get under the skin. One, two, three, four, five, ligaments. Gosh, I I don't know. There's a lot of body parts. How many? There's many that we know. Many when we look at the body of Christ praise God for the many This is the the, this is the Lord's desire that there would be many not just Many numerically though. That's true, but that again as we look at each individual and the spiritual gifting there would be many Many spiritual gifts manifested in different ways. Yes, but that there would be many I'm gonna run there's more to say on that. Many. What else do we learn from the body? Individuality. Romans twelve five says, "So we being many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another." First Corinthians twelve eleven says, "But one in the same Spirit works all things, all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills, lest you think that in the body of Christ." You lose your individuality in a wrong sense that, so to speak, you're just going to fade away. No one will know or care about me. The Lord is not concerned with me. He's just concerned with the bigger purpose. That is not the New Testament church. You, in the body of Christ, are individually a part of it. And God has care and concern for each one individually. So the New Testament church is not a place, not by the divine ideal. I'm not saying we don't fall short in this way, but the divine ideal is not that the New Testament church is a place where you just get lost in the shuffle, lost in the crowd. No, you're an individual, and you're individually important, very important. Unity tells us there's one, there's oneness in the body. The parts are united. Diversity tells us there is distinct difference in the body. The body parts are very different. Quantity tells us that there is vast abundance in the body, that the body parts are many, many, many. But individuality tells us that there is personal significance in the body. The body parts are individual and at that precious to the Lord and the rest of the body. Notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 26. Individuality. Do I matter? Do you matter? Each of us matter? Matter? Absolutely, we do. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says this. And if one member suffers, let me repeat that. And if one member suffers in the divine ideal of the New Testament church, because maybe someone's sitting here thinking, well, I've suffered, and I don't remember that church coming to my side, but this is the divine ideal. This is what we're aiming for. This is what we're striving for, that if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Do you get to maintain your individuality within the body of Christ? You absolutely do. Every single member of the body of Christ matters. Individuality. Lastly, as we consider the body Responsibility. Responsibility. There's so much that could be said about this. The metaphor of the body speaks to unity, diversity, quantity, and individuality within the Lord, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also responsibility. Mm. We don't like that word too much, you know, responsibility. But it is absolutely true that each member of the body has responsibility within the body of Christ. It is a sad situation when parts of the body do not function. Think first physically. When, when parts of our body Don't function. That means that certain things that would be accomplished in the divine ideal are lacking. Or it could also mean that other parts of the body will be overcompensating for the non-functioning parts. Listen, that's harsh. I know that's harsh. But this is the reality of Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. You have responsibility Within the body. Look at 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 14. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body. Lord, I don't like what you've given me. I'm not too thrilled about the responsibility that you've given to me. And so you want to know something? I'm not part of that body. Boy, that sounds childish, but that's the way it reads. And so Paul asks, well, is it therefore not of the body? And the resounding answer coming back is, no, it is still a part of the body, but it's a non-functioning part of the body. You have, I have responsibility within the body of Christ to function in the way that God has given to me, to you, to function. Is it possible to have a non-functioning body part that's still a part of the body? It sure seems so. It's possible physically. Some of us, I bet there's some here today that have body parts that don't function too well. It's a pain in the neck. I got to overcompensate. I got to walk differently. I got to grab differently. I got to think, whatever. I got to see differently, any glasses, something. Because my body parts aren't doing what they ought to do in the divine ideal. Well, the same is true in the body of Christ. Every part has responsibility. Ephesians 4, 16. I know I've read this a lot. It is one of my favorite verses pertaining to spiritual gifts in the body. Joined together by what every joint takes. Joined together by what every joint supplies. Supplies. You are a part of the body. You have been commissioned divinely to supply to the body that which God has gifted you to do. Ephesians 4.16 would say, by which every part does it share. Does it share? I could go on practically about that in different ways. Stewardship is part of it. There's lots that could be said about stewardship. First Peter four in the context of spiritual gifts, remember, says, you are a steward of the manifold grace of God. Stewardship is responsibility. That's the same exact idea. You don't own what God's given to you, dear brother and sister, but you are responsible to manage it. That's stewardship. You don't own it. God has given it to you by grace you are responsible to manage it. And the New Testament is abundantly clear that with everything that God has given to us placed within our stewardship, we will one day give an account. That's solemn. That's sobering. I understand that. That's harsh. I'm not throwing stones at any one particular individual. If anything, I'm talking to me. Lord, I have responsibility within the body of Christ to do what you've gifted me to do. I need to do my share. I'm not called upon to do what God has not given me. This is a problem in the body of Christ. Like that that foot. Well, I'm not an eye. I want to be on the face. I want to be seen. I want one of those functions within the body. That's not stewardship. You're responsible for what the Lord has given you, not what he has not given you. So we're responsible as stewards to do with what the Lord has given. Okay, so um, let's go forward. The mindset. Now, as we look at the metaphor and we see this is the divine ideal, this is where the New Testament church As I understand, by by God's divine design ought to be. But there are certain things that are necessary, absolutely necessary, to accomplish the divine ideal of the body functioning in unity, diversity, quantity, individuality, and responsibility. There are certain things necessary. I'm picking out two, one of which... The first one that we're going to get to, I can attest to you, it is the most important because the scripture is abundantly clear that charity, let me throw it up there, love is number one. So that I can confidently say, don't miss it. Humility, I I think, is very much there as well. I, I don't see how we can avoid it. Humility is absolutely necessary within the body of Christ. Please very quickly bear with me. Romans chapter 12, just before getting into the body and the gifts. Let me say that again. Just before getting into the metaphor of the body and the gifting to the New Testament church, Paul says this. For I say, Romans 12:3, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Humility. Humility. It's as if Paul Knew that if these people get to work and they start exercising their gifts, the first thing that's going to pop up is pride. Pride's going to come in when you start to labor in the body of Christ. It will. Trust me, it will. Humility. Humility. Ephesians 4, and I know we're flipping a lot. Ephesians 4, we read it. I don't want you to miss it. This is the order of Ephesians 4. Humility, charity, then unity. Or you could argue, charity, humility, then unity. However you want to figure out those first two as to which goes first, I don't have a problem with. But the bottom line is that apart from humility and charity, there will be no unity. There will be no unity. If pride is central in the church of God, if pride is, is prominent, is primary, if the New Testament church is known by its pride, I can assure you there's going to be no unity. If the New Testament church is known by its lovelessness, by its lack of sincere care for, 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 for the Lord and for his body, I can assure you there'll be no unity. Humility. Humility. Charity then the body functions in unity and there's all of that beauty that goes with it Ephesians 4 says this I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called Oh, Paul What is that high calling to which I was called? Please tell me with all lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering, bearing with one another, and love. That's the high calling that you've been called to, brother and sister. Humility. Humility. It's evident in all of the passages, humility. It is a sad truth, a sad truth that spiritual gifts can be exercised with the wrong mindset. I hope I don't have to explain that too much for you to understand that. Spiritual gifts can be used with the wrong mindset. This was Corinth. Corinth was filled with pride and, by the way, carnality and lack of love and all of the above. And there were divisions. There was strife. There was contention. There was no unity. Corinth is told us in chapter one as being the most spiritually gifted or at maybe not the most, but he says, you don't fall behind in any spiritual gifts. Hey, you people, as far as spiritual giftedness, you people got it going on. But they were carnal. They were prideful. They lacked love. So what? The spiritual gifts. This is critical to spiritual gifts. There's a reason why I'm I'm addressing this before getting into spiritual gifts because it's absolutely critical. Because spiritual gifts can be used with the wrong mindset and, by the way, the wrong motive as well. The wrong motive as well. Charity. I plead with you to bear with me for just a moment while I share a few things that the Lord has given to me regarding charity. Love. Love is found in all four of the primary passages on spiritual gifts, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, uh, or 1 Corinthians 13 actually is the main chapter of love, and then uh, Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4, all, all emphasize love, critically important, the most important, I would suggest to you. So if it's that important, I want to ask you a question, and this is my last point, we'll run through it. What is love? What is love? If it is this critical to the functioning of the body, listen, I have to read this. 1 Corinthians 13, please turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 13 says this. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. I make noise, but that's about it, apart from love. Though I have the gift of prophecy, remember this is the context: spiritual gifts in Corinth. Adam, I could have the gift of prophecy. I could understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I could have all faith. One Corinthians thirteen two, faith so much that I could remove mountains. But if I have not love, I am nothing. Verse 3 says, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, what an act of kindness. And though I even give my body to be burned, self-sacrifice, greater love has no man than this, than that a man lay down his life. But have not love, it profits me nothing. What is love? Many times we do this. We take the gospel of love, the gospel of John, and we 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 go through the gospel of John. And we read things like John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave. And so we come to a Almost fitting conclusion. Well, here it is. Love is giving. We come to John 13, and we see here is the one who the scriptures say he loved his own and he loved him to the end, John 13, at the very beginning. And he he, he bows in humble servitude and he washes their feet. And so we say this is love. Humble servitude. We come to John 14, and the Lord Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so we say, well, here it is. This is love. It's obedience. Giving. Yes. Humble servitude. Yes. All of it. And we come to John 15, which says greater love is no man than this than that a man lay down his life for his friends. And we say, well, here it is. This is love. Self-sacrificial, lay down your life, this is love. And so we create, whether we like it or not, a mindset that says these certain things that we do, if we do them, then we have love, but that's the opposite of what the apostle Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13. He's telling you, you could do all of that. You could, you could, you could, Give everything you have to the poor. But without love, it's nothing. So love is something deeper than just the action. It absolutely is. You could give your body to be burned. Wait a minute, but, but John 15 says, greater love is no man than this than that. A man lay down his life. And now he says in 1 Corinthians 13, you could give your body to be burned, self-sacrifice. That's what it is. But without love, it's nothing. I don't get it. What is love? What is love? The Lord has given me so much on this, so much, an entire message, but I can't do that now. I know we have to close. Look at Philippians chapter 1. And while you go to Philippians chapter 1, think about this. When we take 1 Corinthians 13, which says love is kind and love is patient and love is not puffed up, and love is not self-promoting, and so forth and so on. We can look at that as well, just like the Gospel of John, and say, well, if I'm kind, and I'm patient, and I'm not self-promoting, and I'm not prideful, then I have love. But that's the opposite of what he's saying. He's saying you can do lots of things. You can have duty, but with no desire, I would say. Nothing in the heart. It's worth nothing. You can have sacrifice, but, but if there's no sincere care in your heart, then you have nothing. So listen to what Paul says in Philippians one verse eight, for God is my witness. How greatly I long for you all. This is Paul speaking to the Philippian church. God is my witness. How greatly I long for you all with the bowels of Jesus Christ. That's an ugly term. That's King James. Mine says, with the affection of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he's saying. God is my witness that within the very depths of my being, I long for you. This is love. So love is manifested in actions. Listen. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What we have in the Gospel of John is the manifestation of love. 1 John 4, 9 says, in this the love of God is manifested. In this the love of God was manifested. Listen, I know that this is a nuanced, subtle difference, but it's extremely important. Follow me for a moment. This the love of God is manifested that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. So the action is the manifestation of the love that ought to be in your heart. What we have in First Corinthians 13 is not the definition of love. It is the marks and measurements of love. So don't read 1 Corinthians 13 and say, what is love? Well, here is love. The scriptures say, love is, love is, love is, love is. And so if I do this, 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 and this, then I have love. That's a wrong conclusion, a very wrong conclusion. Paul would say, in contrast to that, for God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with the very bowels of Jesus Christ. The the bowels, as I understand it, is the depth of the human soul, the seat of emotion. Paul's saying, I don't just act like I love you. I actually do love you. I'm not just going to sacrifice for you. I actually sincerely care about you. In fact, he uses that term In Philippians chapter 2, I have no one like-minded like Epaphroditus who will sincerely care for your state. So love is not the action, though love is manifested by the action. Love is that deep affection and sincere care which God has for us. Brothers and sisters, this is extremely important. If we cheapen love to the level of action we lose the sincere care of God's love. God actually cares about you. He actually loves you. He didn't just act love. He actually loves you. And he wants you to actually love one another. This whole mindset, well, I don't got to like him, Lord, do I? Just love him? This is, this is way off to the far extreme. Way off! Listen, in Luke 15, one of the proof texts for those that stress love is action and love is action, love is giving and love is sacrificing everything you can do. Luke 15, or is it Luke 10, is the story of the, uh, the man who's robbed and the scriptures, the parable of the uh, of the Good Samaritan. Where am I? Luke 15. This is so important. 10? Okay, Luke 10. I'm in 11. Okay, so listen to this. Listen to this. A man goes down to Jerusalem. He's robbed blind. He's left for dead. A Levite comes. He sees the man. He passes on the other side. A Pharisee comes, he sees the man laying there dead. He passes on the other side. But but a Samaritan comes and he sees the man and he picks him up and he binds him. But is that all he did? Listen to what Luke 10 and verse 33 says. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had Compassion. The bowels within him moved. Love is not just a feeling, but don't disconnect it from the, 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 what is within you, the sincere care that you ought to have. This is the same Greek word as Philippians chapter one. He was moved within him. This is what it says of the Lord Jesus eight times in the gospels. He looked upon the people and he didn't just act. He was moved with compassion. His bowels were moved. He actually, actually cared about them. And so we can read Luke chapter 10 and we can say, well, I'm going to be more like that that Samaritan, Lord. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. That would be, I guess, a fitting conclusion. Or we could read Luke chapter 10 and we could say, Lord... That is not my heart. My heart is more like the Levite. It's more like the Pharisee. I am not moved with compassion like this man. Lord, I need a supernatural work from you to work in my heart to make me actually love the people of God. I want, like Paul, to to be able to say, God is my witness. I greatly long for you with my very bowels. I'm not just acting love. I actually love you. And see, so what this does when we get this right, what this does when we get this right, it drives us back to the source of love. First John chapter four is perhaps a greater chapter on love. Then 1 Corinthians 13, do with that whatever you wish. But 1 John chapter 4 tells us the source of love. The one who abides in love abides in God. Not your own actions. Yes, part of it is the will. I'm not saying it's not. But it is so much deeper than that. God actually loves you. He actually cares about you. God has given you natural affection for your family members so you can understand the type of affection, the type of care that we ought to have for one another. I know it's not natural. You say, well, Lord, that's crazy, crazy. You want me to have sincere care for those people like you've given me for my children and for my wife, for my parents? You want me to live out love like I see in 1 Corinthians 13 and John 3 and John 14 and 13 and 15? That's what you expect of me? That's exactly what he expects of you. And you're saying, but I can't do that. And God's saying, perfect. Perfect. You're on your knees saying, Lord, I can't love these people like this. If this is love, I'm a lost cause. I can't do it. Drives you to your knees. Back to the source of love. Where will you get this kind of love for your brothers and sisters? Hey, where will you even get this kind of love for your spouse? Only from the supernatural love of God. Get back on your knees. Go back to the source of love. The one who abides in love abides in God. You can't do it on your own, it's supernatural supernatural. He actually cares about you. You are commissioned to actually care. Don't just act like you care, but you're commissioned to actually care about the body of Christ with deep affection, with sincere care. This brothers and sisters is the love of God. Our father, we thank you for the way that you have spoken to us by your word. And we thank you for the way that you have loved us loved us unto death, even the death of the cross. Oh God, your love is so incredible. It's been manifested in so many different ways. And God, we relish in the fact that you actually care about us. You really do love us. This is tremendous and beautiful. We thank you for that, Lord. We magnify you for that. Help us, Lord. We want this kind of love, supernatural love, for one another, even as we exercise our spiritual gifts. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.